I'll meet you in the 12th chapter of the Gospel of John this morning. I want to start with the final verse of our sermon. And that's a little bit backward, I know. You should start at the beginning and work your way to the end. I want to start at the end and then work my way from the beginning to that point because I really want to take us on a little bit of a Jesus journey today in a story in which you and I are in some way the star, the star character. We're not even there. But yet, because of the nature of this group of men that come to see Jesus, we are kind of there. You'll know what I mean in just a moment. Let's start in John chapter 12 in a verse that without context is only going to make so much sense. Verse 43, for they loved human glory more than the glory that comes from God. Well, if that was the only verse we read, everyone would be able to identify the problem. The problem is someone in this story would rather have men's compliment, men's glory and men's praise than the glory that comes from God. And automatically this is a negative because nobody wants to be this guy. Nobody wants to prefer the glory that comes from men over the glory that comes from God. And so um, it's not a big stretch to say we don't want to be that guy. We want to be the one that wants the glory from God. But that's missing a lot of points before we ever even get the story off the ground. And one of the points might be that what is the definition of glory? So I want to talk to you today about the glory that comes from God. What that look like? That's right there in the text. Whatever this group is, they prefer the glory that comes from men rather than the glory that comes from God. And while you may say, well, I wouldn't want to be that guy, if I were to ask you, well, then what is the glory that comes from God that you'd like to have? Well, the definitions would be all over the map in any given room you could ever go in. You'd say, what's the glory of God look like? And so if you don't know what the glory of God looks like, how do you know you'd rather have it than the glory of men? Okay, safe default position, well, if it's God, I'd rather have it. Okay, well, that's safe enough. If it's God, I'd rather have it than what I'd rather have from men. But the problem is, if you don't know how to define the terms, then sometimes they bleed over into each other. And I propose that sometimes what we're calling the glory of God is really just the glorified praise of men, shouted as if it's praise or worship or growth or anointing or talent and sometimes what we're wishing we had is really just the spotlight that comes from having done something that people give us glory for so let's be sure we get our terms right because i know we don't want that either what we really want is whatever whatever god's glory is that looks like jesus well that's what we really want And so I told you that you're in the story. Now, Crossroads is not in the story. You're not personally in the story, but you're a subgroup that's in this story. So am I. Let's go back to the beginning of it. And it really starts in verse 20. Now, among those who went up to worship at the festival were some Greeks. And whether you realize it or not, that's you. Now, the reason I say that's you is because for purposes of the gospel, In the New Testament, it's broken down into Jew and Gentile, or Jew and Greek. A Jew was someone who had the law of Moses, who had Torah, who was someone who could trace their lineage back to Abraham. They sacrificed at the temple. They had Judaism as their religion. The Greeks had everything else. They were multicultural. They had multi-gods. They worshipped in temples everywhere. They were atheist, agnostic, hyper-religious 
uh, pluralistic, polytheistic religions, multiple gods. But the one qualifier was not bloodline. It was not Jewish. Okay. So if you're not Jewish, you're in this story. All right. That's you. That's me. So when a group of Greeks come to Jesus, this is also why we we eventually come up with the term, that's Greek to me. Why do we say that's Greek to me? Why don't we say that's Chinese to me? I mean, I can read Chinese as well as I can read Greek, at least modern Greek. So we say it because it's the outside. That's outside. That's foreign to me. That's not family. That's not familiar. So a bunch of not familiar people come to Jesus. A bunch of foreigners come to Jesus who do not have his religion, who do not have his bloodline. They do not have his heritage. They don't have anything that connects them to his God. And yet they're intrigued by Jesus. And man, I don't blame them because if I'd heard the stories of Jesus, I'd like to think I'd have been intrigued too. It's like, you mean this guy's doing what? He's feeding thousands with a kid's lunch. He, he raises people from the dead. He delivers them from possessions and, and oppressions. He opens the eyes of the blind. He makes deaf people hear. I'd like to meet this man. I'd like to find out who he is. I'd like to know more about this Jesus. So it's not shocking to me that Greeks come to meet Jesus, that they come to find Jesus. It's actually shocking to me more Greeks don't come to find Jesus. Before I read any more, let me explain something about the Gospel of John. I'm a big, big Gospel of John fan. And one of the reasons why I'm a Gospel of John fan is because, well, I, I kind of like unique things. John's unique. He's not like Matthew, Mark, or Luke. He's, that's why we call him the non-synoptic Gospel. He's non-similar to the other three. And he's non-similar in a lot of ways. I don't want to bore you. This is not classroom stuff, but... Um, he's non-similar in that he just gets to work. He doesn't give you a genealogy. He doesn't give you the birth. He doesn't give you the, the angels in the field. He, he, he ignores all of that, but he gets to work recreating the Bible. In the beginning, God, in the beginning was the Word and words with God. He rewrites Genesis, and he works really hard to take you on a journey to show you the Jesus that's farthest removed from the physical Jesus. Why I say that is that John is written, without a doubt, last of the four Gospels. And maybe even last of every book in the Bible. Which means that John has the biggest amount of space between him and the glorified, resurrected Jesus of any of the gospel writers. And why that's important is because the Jesus that John presents is a glimpse at what Jesus is in his enthronement and his glorification. When you look at the Jesus of John, what is jarring are the things he doesn't talk about. The things he doesn't do. He never talks about hell. He never mentions the end of the world. The Jesus of John is as if he's sitting on the throne in Revelation 4 and 5. It's the enthroned Christ, glorified and resurrected, and the stories flow out of that version of Jesus. One scholar I read on the book of Revelation has said, Revelation is the unveiling of Christ. John's what he looks like day to day. Well, I like that. Revelation says, let's lift the curtain on Jesus. John says, let's show you what he'd look like if you could walk around with him. So when you get to the Jesus of John, you're getting to a Jesus who's bringing you a perspective that's on the other side, really, really moving as if from the other side of the cross, really moving as if from the resurrection side of the cross. And so the things he says points invariably to the, to the crucified lamb and points to the, to, to the enthroned lamb. And so now we have a group of Greeks who come and 
to, to see Jesus, let me show you why they're there. Verse 21, they came to Philip who was from Bethsaida in Galilee and said to him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. I think the old King James says, Sir, we would see Jesus. Always been an intriguing statement to me. All we want to do is see Jesus. Can we see Jesus? Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains but just a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now, I want you to notice what Jesus doesn't do. Jesus doesn't say, yeah, bring them over here. Let's talk. Jesus doesn't say, well, go ask them what they want. We'll see if we got time. It's almost as if Jesus completely ignores the fact that there's a group of Greeks that are there to see him. Because let me just kind of replay it for you. Hey, Jesus, there's some guys here. They're Greeks. They're not Jews. They'd love to meet you. And Jesus goes, it's time for the Son of Man to be glorified. If the seed doesn't go into the ground and die, it won't bring forth fruit. But if it goes into the ground and dies, it'll bring forth much fruit. At which point, I assume Philip and Andrew kind of looked at each other and went, so what do we do with these Greeks? Because you didn't address the Greeks at all. I mean, you didn't just roundabout not address. You just didn't. You acted like we didn't even say anything. Here's the amazing thing. And we're going to read on a little bit in this story. And we're going to kind of pick our way through this story to pick the salient points. But he never addresses these Greeks. He never calls them off to the side. He never says, hey, here's what I really would have wanted to say to you guys, but I had some other things on my mind. You know, uh, I needed to say what the Lord told me to say in the moment. All the spiritual things we would say. You know, I was in the zone. I was under the anointing. I was under the spout where the glory comes out. You can't disturb me when I'm there. You know, don't take the edge off my anointing, all that stuff. None of that. Jesus never says a word to those Greeks. But I propose that he just did. Because by what's happening in the story, Jesus is addressing the rest of the world. Those of us who do not have Torah as our background, who cannot trace our lineage to Abraham, who are not bloodline connected to the promise of Abraham, those Greeks, us, who come to Christ without background, and we want to see Jesus. And Jesus is saying to them, there's only one way that you can see me if you're not versed in Torah and you don't have sacrificial systems that work as illustrations like shed blood and feast days and anointings all of those things can be types and shadows it's easy to see Jesus if you know about Passover and Jesus becomes the Passover but what if you're Greek and you don't know about Passover and you don't know about shed blood and you don't know about temple sacrifice and you don't know about Abrahamic covenant. You don't know about crossing over the Jordan and marching around Jericho and you have none of the history. How are you supposed to see Jesus? You go, well, the best way to see Jesus is if he had just walked up and let him see him. But that doesn't do crossroads any good. Mm, come on. See, that doesn't do me any good if Jesus just walks up and goes, hey, guys, nice to meet you. Great, but when I read that story, I'm going, gosh, why didn't I get the chance to do that? I mean, I want to walk up and shake his hand too. But Jesus knows that the Greeks represent all of the rest of us. And if all of the rest of us are going to see Jesus, and Judaism is not going to be our foundation. Because by the way, Judaism is not your foundation. You are not Jews that come to Jesus and somehow that makes you better Christians. I was raised with a mentality 
that the greatest kind of Christian you could be would be to be born Jewish and then come to Christ because you'd have all the, the roots right and then you'd have Jesus. But what I really believe is that Jesus Christ is the foundation and the root of our faith. That you don't have to come in through any other religion, faith, creed, bloodline, or family, but faith in Christ brings you all the way into the throne room of God, and God doesn't check your credentials at the door. In reality, I'm just kind of dovetailing off something we all worship to this morning. I don't know if you was paying any attention, but your third song said that all of the earth, their knees are going to bow before God. So I want to ask you, do you believe that? Because if you believe that all of the earth, their knees are going to bow before God, what you are saying is, I believe that in the end, God wins. I believe that in the end, Jesus is so enthroned that no matter how rebellious you were against God, no matter how much you hated God, no matter how much you said God did not exist, you too will bow your knee before God. I say amen to that. The difference is how we think it gets there. Because some people believe that at the point of a sword, Jesus is going to hold you over the flames of hell until you agree and then snap a couple of your legs till you fall down and then when you're down there you can worship me or you can lay there and bleed but eventually you'll decide to worship me or Jesus is the seed that went into the ground to die because if he doesn't go into the ground to die he can't bring forth much fruit but if he goes into the ground to die, he brings forth much fruit. I would say he brings forth all the fruit. <laughs> I would say he brings forth however much of the fruit he wants. And if that then becomes Paul's, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess, then I say amen to that. And how does that happen? Because Jesus died. Because Christ, the seed, goes into the ground to die. So, hey, Greeks, you want to see Jesus? Seeing him now will only take you so far. I want you to see him forever. I want you to see him without the benefit of his flesh. I want you to see him without the miracle. I want you to see him without the story. I want you to be able to see him in your darkest night. I want you to be able to see him in your, in your lowest moment. I want you to be able to find him when you can't find anyone else. And that's not going to happen if he's just the physical Jesus. He needs to be something far more than that. That's right. That's right. And so the seed of corn. So when Jesus tells this whole seed story, he's not ignoring the Greeks. He's introducing the only way for all of us Greeks to really meet him. And that is to meet him in the waters of baptism. To meet him at the hill of Calvary. To meet him at the broken body. Every illustration I've used is sacramental to the church because they're all illustrative of the death of Christ. Like it or not, when you signed up to follow Jesus, you became a people obsessed with death. You did. Obsessed with his death. Obsessed with the man who carried his cross up the hill and bore our sins and died. But just as there are multiple ways to see how we're going to get to the every knee bows and every tongue confesses, there's multiple ways to look at that cross. Because for so many of us for so long, looking at the cross was, was kind of shaking our head with a tear in our eye going, look at Jesus up there dying for me. My sins put him on that cross. But I want to take you a step further than that. Start to look at that cross as you dying 
on that cross because Paul would take it that next step and say, we conclude that when he died, everybody died. Second Corinthians five, that when he died, all men died at Calvary. What was really happening is not Jesus dying as an outsider outside the gate for sins you will commit, but Jesus dying once and for all for all of us as if we were dying there at Calvary that day. That then makes the resurrection fruit coming forth from the ground. The seed has died, much fruit comes forth. What's much fruit mean? One man died and look at how many people are in this room. One man died and look at how many people across 20 centuries have claimed to resurrected Christ. Across denominational lines, across racial lines, across tongue, across cultures that claim Jesus Christ is alive. All over the world this morning on the Lord's Day, people are worshiping God. And they're worshiping Him in 10,000 different iterations. High church, low church, shouters, snorers. All kinds of people. People saying creeds. People taking communion. People teaching, people preaching. We got a lot of disagreements. Most of the time we just focus on those. The beauty is that across all of those places today, without exception, if they call themselves Christian, they believe Jesus is alive. Isn't that amazing? That recently becomes so powerful to me. Across religion, across denominations, they believe Jesus. All we want to do is focus on whether they speak in tongues or whether they got baptized right or whether they think there will be a rapture or not or, um, you know, g- g- give, me your, give me your theory on angels and demons or do you think hell lasts forever? Do you think it's eternal conscious torment or do you think it's annihilation or do you think it's an allegory? And we just want to fight and fight and build walls and decide that that's not the tent we want to go to. That's a, but the one thing that we get together, Jesus is alive. You go, well, you know, I'm not sure that's enough. Well, Jesus has a group of Greeks come to him, and they want to know him. And he goes, it won't do you any good to know me through your lens. You're going to only know me as the fruit that comes out of the the resurrection of a seed. And now, what does that moment look like? How do we get to that place? Well, we know that the seed, 24, if it stays into the earth, and dies if it doesn't it's just a single grain but if it dies it bears much fruit because the seed contains an embryo the embryo only gets one shot seeds don't get two shots at growth have you ever put a seed in the ground and it sprouted forth and then it died you don't get to try again you got to pull that one out and start over right seeds don't get to they, they get one strike they don't get three strikes the embryo inside bursts forth and lives. It's a miraculous thing because they know the conditions. Like if you keep a seed dry and put it away, it'll last for years. Right. But then the minute you put it in the right condition, something just clicks. Like no one has to have a conversation with that seed and say, look, we're, tomorrow's the day, buddy. We're going to put you in the garden. I got you a good spot, good sunlight, going to water you. Me and you, we're going to work together. You don't have to do that. The seed's already got all it needs. It doesn't need outside motivation. You even got to be careful putting it near moisture. Because it'll take that water and, ooh, must be time to grow and burst forth. And maybe it's not time to grow. But the point being is that it, it runs toward the thing that brings its life and it gets that shot. It gets, but what really happens, because what Jesus says is technically, stay with me here, technically incorrect. Seeds don't die. Seeds come alive. Okay? So what's Jesus mean that the seed dies? 
What we know is that Jesus is comparing a seed cracking open and coming forth with the death he's about to die. That I am the seed and I'm going to go into the ground and if I don't go into the ground and die, I can't bring forth what I'm supposed to bring forth. But if I do go into the ground and die, I will burst forth once for all. I'm using new covenant language now. Once for all, I will burst forth and bring forth much fruit. And out of that one man's death, much shall come out of it. Now, as a way of sort of doubling down on his illustration, Jesus changes tacks, which he's really good at doing. He likes to go one direction, pause, turn, and go the other direction, but he's still on the same trail. He's just building the trail as he goes. It sounds sometimes like he's out in the weeds. Like, what is he doing over here? He was over here. Now he's over here. But he's, he's just changing the way we think about the gospel. So he started you on the seed track, which, by the way, Paul will very subtly pick up on in Galatians and say, the promise of Abraham has been made to seed, not seeds. He goes, so the promise of Abraham is no longer to a people, but to a person. And Paul goes, and the seed is Christ. So there's Paul reaching into the, what will eventually be the Gospel of John, because got, I've got a feeling Galatians comes long before John. But there's Paul reaching forward into that story. Maybe John in John 12 is reaching back into Paul and going, you want to know where that seed starts? It starts in the man Jesus. So Jesus takes a hard turn here. In John chapter 12, verse 27, my soul is troubled. What should I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It's for this reason I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it. I will glorify it again. And the crowd standing there heard it and said that it was thunder. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not for mine. Jesus knows he's about to be glorified. They don't, but he's about to show them how. Because if we're not careful, we might think that the glory of God is best represented in transfiguration. On our lectionary calendar, we just passed transfiguration a few weeks ago. You might have spent some time dealing with Jesus, Moses, and Elijah at the top of that mountain. Now that is a sign of the glory of God. That is the glory of God that Jesus has in his resurrection. That is the glory that Jesus has even now. That is the glory that tells us that we're done with Moses and we're done with Elijah. This is why a man that knows Jesus is never at the mercy of a man that knows how to quote the law. Let me say that again. A man that knows Jesus knows the glorified, transfigured Christ. Moses and Elijah show up and Peter goes, let's build three houses. And God shows up and says, that's not the way this is going to work. Moses and Elijah are about to disappear. This is my son. Hear him. You are on the other side of the cross. Christ is your voice. Moses is not your voice. Elijah is not your voice. We don't need a new Moses and we don't need the days of Elijah. We have Jesus. Jesus is head and shoulders above everyone and he's the only one left on the field. So in terms of resurrection glory, transfiguration will show you. But in terms of the glory that will come to Christ at Calvary, Jesus has made that left turn now and is going to take us down that road. The crowd needs to hear it. Jesus doesn't need to hear it. But then Jesus says this in verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be driven out. Crossroads, let me ask you a question. According to Jesus, when was the judgment of the world? 
them. Or in Jesus' words, now. The judgment of this, if Jesus can be trusted, the judgment of the world and the ruler of the world happened in John 12, 31. Now is the judgment of the world. Now the prince of the world will be cast out. You say, Pastor Paul, what about a future judgment? I'm glad you asked. Any and all future judgments have to go through now. Any and all future judgments have to go through John 12, 31. You can't get around it. And most of what we think is the judgment day in the future is full of Moses and Elijah. That's how we think the world's going to be judged. The plagues of Moses and the fire of Elijah. And the glory of God said, this is my son, listen to him. I'm done with the Moses and the Elijah spirit. One time Jesus is confronted with it by his own disciples. He goes through a village and the village doesn't like him. And the disciples go, hey, you want us to call down fire on him like Elijah did? And Jesus goes, you don't know what spirit you're of. The son of man didn't come to kill people. He come to save them. You don't know what spirit you're of. Hoping people die is a demonic spirit. Hoping people get what's coming is the spirit of the enemy. And calling it God is Antichrist. You don't have to look for a character called the Antichrist. There's not one in the Bible. There's not even an Antichrist in the book of Revelation. He only shows up in 1 John, and when he's there, he's a spirit. Not a person. The spirit of Antichrist. And John said it was alive and well in 1 John. And what? If it was alive and well in 1 John, it's probably alive and well today. The spirit of Antichrist. That which purports Christ, but looks nothing like Christ. So you can purport a Christ of justice who slaughters and kills, and you've identified the spirit of Antichrist. Now is the judgment of this world. Now is the prince of this world cast out. Now, when I am lifted up from the earth, verse 32, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Or as the old King James says, and I, if I be lifted up from the earth. I like that kind of repetitive poetry. And I, if I be lifted up. I kind of have a feeling Jesus didn't say it that way. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto me. That word men's not there in the Bible. It's, it's italicized in all of your text. The italicized word means it wasn't there in the Greek. So Jesus says something closer to, if I'm lifted up, I will draw all to myself. And so we are then forced to deal with what is all. Well, the translators dealt with all by putting people or putting men. And if you, let's just leave that out for a moment. And maybe, I'm going to give you a couple things to think about. All right, I'm not going to tell you where to land. I'm going to give you a couple options. You can turn left, you can turn right. You listen to the Holy Spirit. Maybe the word should not have been there. It wasn't there in the Greek. Maybe it should be. And I, if I'm lifted up, I will draw all of it into myself. All of what? Now is the judgment of this world. Now is the prince of this world cast out. And if I'm lifted up, I'll take all of it into me. Ooh. If that's the case, whatever judgment's left for you, it has to go find Jesus first. Which is why you're going to be left with what you do with Jesus, not with what you do in you. That's good stuff. 
But what if they added people or men because they knew what that word draw meant in the Greek? Because what that word draw actually is in the Greek. Draw is a four-letter English word, starts with a D. There was another four-letter English word that starts with a D that's closer to the word in the Greek. And it is, if I be lifted up, I will drag all to me. And maybe the translators didn't want to put drag because man, that opens some can of worms. That's got Jesus dragging sinners, kicking and screaming into him. And what's that mean? Oh, I don't know if I want to deal with that. So let's don't call it drag, let's call it draw, but let's meet him in the middle and stick a word in there that ain't there called people. If I be lifted up all, drag all people unto me. I'm not telling you which one to land on. I kind of think maybe you should land on both. I kind of think you should see it like Jesus takes all the judgment into himself. And if he takes it all into himself, there's none left for you. So he's going to drag you in. The difference is how do you think you get there? Now, every one of you, amen, at the top of this sermon. We do agree with that song. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue will confess. Amen. They're all going to bow before God. All I'm doing is giving you some options as to how we get there. How do we get there? How do we end up with them all bowing before God? Because I agree with you. I agree with Paul. And you know why I agree? I don't even agree because Paul said it. I agree because I'm impressed with the resurrected Jesus. And I'm stunned at the cross. And if Christ went to Calvary and did all of that and then raised from the dead, he can't lose. I don't know what his win looks like, but I'm pretty sure it doesn't look like the glory of men. See, I didn't forget where we're going. There's a glory of men kind of win, and there's a glory of God kind of win. And so Jesus goes, if I'm lifted up, I'll draw all of it into me. Or if I'm lifted up, I'll drag all of you into me. Take both of them. But you can't take neither of them. You can take both. You can take one. You can't say neither. I don't know exactly which one he lands on. I like them both. They both mean, in my opinion, they both mean the same thing. Well, I'll go ahead and tip my hand. Because if he draws all the judgment into himself, what's left for you? Nothing. You coming in, whether you like it or not. That's just me. All right? That's just me. It's out there. You agreed. They're all going to bow. How do we get there? Seed of corn got to drop into the ground and die. If it drops into the ground and die, watch out. Because if it drops into the ground and dies, much fruit comes forth. The whole church is birthed at Calvary. The whole church is birthed at the resurrection. All of it explodes in and around and from that moment. If I'm lifted up from the earth, I'll draw all men to myself. He said this to indicate the kind of death he would die. Verse 34, the crowd answered him. We've heard from the law that Messiah reigns for, remains forever. I'm going I'm to stop there on that portion because there's a side trail here that we don't have time for on a Sunday morning about the Son of Man. And if you want to know more, go read Daniel 7. Jesus is calling himself the Son of Man, which is a uniquely Jewish term that is the one who presents himself to the Ancient of Days and the kingdoms rest upon his shoulders. And so what they think they're getting is a Messiah who's going to overthrow Caesar with the sword. But what they're really getting is a Messiah who's going to die in front of Caesar go into death and explode out the other side. And that all the kingdoms of the earth are then going to have to answer to the crater called the resurrection. And so that kingdom, that's son of man talk. That's clouds of heaven talk. 
He who rides on the clouds of heaven, stands before the ancient of days, son of man. So when Jesus calls us son of man, he's claiming messianic prophecy. Okay, in the, eye, in the mind of a Jew first century, messianic prophecy means that this guy's going to come in, he's going to lead a military coup, he's going to overthrow our oppressors, he's going to give us our rightful land back, he's going to win, and I like to say it this way, he's going to win at the devil's game because he's better at playing it than the devil. At least that's how, that's still how a lot of people view Jesus to this day. Someday, Jesus is going to come back and win at the devil's game because he's going to play it better than the devil. Now, I don't believe that one bit. Christ could have picked up the devil's weapons in the wilderness. Right. Hey, bow down to me. You can have all of this. And Jesus went, I only serve my father. Right. We're going to do it dad's way. We're not going to do it your way. Your way is quick. Your way has human glory. Your way is full of pride. Your way is full of violence. Your way is full of death. My father's way is slow. My father's way, is unless a seed falls into the ground and dies, it doesn't bring forth much fruit. But if it falls into the ground and dies, it brings forth much fruit. It multiplies. And I'll be lifted up and all the judgment will be drawn into me and I'll drag everybody in through what I do. It's going to be slow. It's going to be painful. You're not going to get it. I'm going to have to die and you're going to think we lost. Because the glory that comes from the Father doesn't look like the glory that comes from men. I hope you're starting to see where the glory that comes from men, what it looks like. It looks like winning. It looks like vengeance. It looks like strength. It looks like pride. Then what would be the glory that comes from God? Everything else. But really concentrate that everything else on the death of the seed that falls into the ground. Because it's there that it happens. Look at verse 37. Although he had performed so many signs in their presence, they did not believe in him. And this was to fulfill the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah, Lord, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And so they could not believe because Isaiah had said he also blinded their eyes, hardened their heart that they might not look with their eyes and understand with their heart in turn. And I would heal them. Before I move on any further, can I do, let me do about 60 seconds of teaching that I think is so vital right here, because if you don't, people read this verse and they get hung up. They don't even hear the rest of the message because they're going, hey, they couldn't even get saved if they wanted to because the Bible says their eyes were blinded. So why, why all this? Some people just can't get saved. Paul knew we were going to do this, so he wrote 2 Corinthians 3. And in 2 Corinthians 3, he said, Moses and the Ten Commandments are the ministry of death. And he said, everyone that reads them now on the other side of the resurrection has their heart blinded and cannot see God. It's not God that blinds the heart. It's me thinking I can perform the law to achieve grace and favor with God that blinds my heart to grace. Do you want to know why so many people are blind to grace? Because they're so infatuated with moral code and doing it right that they can't allow the light of grace to shine into their heart. Therefore, they are blinded to letting Christ do it. When we live that way, it makes us judgmental. Because we just go around trying to find people who are doing things wrong to make our own self feel better on all the things that we're not doing right. And that's a blinded heart. And Paul goes, everyone who reads Moses has their heart blinded to this day. He said, but when they come to the Lord, he removes the veil so that they can see him. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Do you know that's that verse? My Pentecostal heritage, we only used where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty in praise and worship hour when we were trying to get people to shout. I'll tell you what, the spirit of the Lord's here today. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. Somebody in this place ought to be free. That verse is actually, whenever you finally let go of Moses, the spirit of the Lord will come in and then you'll be alive. You finally let go of Moses and the law and performance and morality codes and doing it yourself and being somebody. When you finally let go of the glory of man, which is perpetuated by works. The glory of man is perpetuated by... When you finally let go of the glory of man... 
there'll be nothing left but the glory of heaven. It'll be Christ. And yes, it will be Christ and Him crucified. And yes, it will be Christ going into the tomb and raising up in a newness of life. And that will be our new identity. And that's why I can't judge you. I literally have nothing to say to you about your day-to-day lives. Christ put them in Him at the cross and He resurrected. And you, you claim the same Christ I do. To judge you based on your performance, I'd have to resuscitate the law. I'd have to bring it back to life as if it determines your value. And to do that, we would be blinded. That's John 12. Jesus standing in front of a blinded world because they're obsessed with moral code. Listen, folks, we're talking about the Pharisees here. We're not talking about some punks down the street living like dogs trying to call it holy. We're talking about the highest, most pious people in the world of that day, the Pharisees. If you'd ask the average Jew on the street in the first century, who's the people in the world that are the closest to God, they'd have said the high priests and the Pharisees. Jesus' battle is not against somebody in the gutter. Jesus' battle is against the religious. You can go, well, no, they weren't the highest and most pious. You're right, they weren't. But the common perception of people is always that the people at the top end of the religious totem pole are the closest to God. It doesn't make it right. It makes it common and popular. So the average person would have looked at Sadducee, Pharisee, pick. And yes, there would have been differences of opinion. Maybe they're the Sadducees, maybe it's the Pharisees, maybe it's the high priest, maybe it's the scribes. But we're talking about the upper crust of religious performance. And then here comes Jesus. And Jesus says, you know, the reason you can't see this is because your hearts are blind. You you can't turn. Verse 41, Isaiah said this because he saw, Isaiah said this because he saw God's glory and spoke about God. Nevertheless, many, even the authorities, believed in him. Because of the Pharisees, they didn't confess it for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. And here's where we open. For they loved human glory more than the glory that comes from God. Why? So let's end where we began. Human glory wins. Human glory retaliates. Human glory profits. Human glory revels in revenge. Human glory stands when everybody else falls. Human glory is natural strength. Uses whatever it has to do to win. And then comes Jesus. And he goes, we're going to come in through the Father, Father's glory. I'm a seed. I got to die. If I die, much fruit can come forth. It's going to be slow. It's going to be ugly. It's going to be bloody. It's going to be painful. It's going to break your pride. But it's the glory from heaven. You want to know what happens when you start to have a revelation of of the resurrected Christ in your life? You experience the glory of heaven. For the first time, you really experience who God is when you begin to see it in the resurrected Jesus. Jesus is alive. And because Jesus is alive, Jesus is alive in me. And if Jesus is alive in me, then I participate in the glory of God by faith in who Christ is. You see, my hope and my prayer is that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. And my hope and my prayer is that they get there because Jesus drags them all in with his love. But I have no idea what it looks like. And I'm pretty sure I can't make any of it happen. But here's what I do know. Here's what I do believe. Jesus came that you might have life that you might have more abundant. He decided not to tell you what heaven looks like. He decided not to tell you what all of eternity looks like. But he did decide to tell you what your life could look like. He said, this is eternal life that they may know my Father. Listen to that. This is eternal life 
that they may know my father. Know my dad, you know what eternity looks like. Which means that the more I know about the Father God as expressed through Jesus in his relationship with the Son, Father and Son, the more I know what eternity is. So here's what I know and what I believe. I, I believe in a resurrected Jesus. I believe that he loves us. I believe that he's alive today. Not sitting on a throne in a distant place called heaven, separated and someday will come back, but alive and well on planet earth. I don't know if I didn't get any amens because you don't agree with me or just because you're so taken that you just couldn't even amen. So I'm going to try it one more time. I believe that he's alive and well on planet earth. And I believe you can experience the life of God through Jesus. And for those that say, well, what if, if, everybody, if every knee bows and every tongue confesses, what's the use in even telling people about the Lord? Oh, because knowing him while you're alive on this earth is the life of God. And why would you want to skip it? Why would you want to skip knowing the life of the eternal while you're alive? You go, I'll tell you why I'd want to skip it, because if that's the life where you die in order to win, why wouldn't I just go ahead and try to win without trying to die? And that's the great objection throughout time to Christianity, is why don't we just shortcut and pick up the weapon? Right? You go, I don't know if that's the shortcut. Well, go to Gethsemane. When Jesus says the hour for my glorification has come, this is the moment, guys, that I'm alive for. Let's go. And here come the soldiers to arrest Jesus. And Peter pulls his sword and chops off Malchus's ear. He's not aiming for his ear. He's aiming for his head. You don't chop off people's ear. You chop off their head. Malchus's servant was quick. Just not quick enough. Boom, boom, there goes his ear. Jesus, at risk of getting his hand cut off, jumps in and puts his hand up. He says, stop it. Permit this. If you live by this sword, Peter, you're going to die by this sword. That's their equipment. That's not my equipment. Peter is so offended that he denies Christ three times by the charcoal fire. Because you've got to ask yourself all night long if that's the Jesus you really want to follow. And you go, well, I would have never denied Jesus. Are you sure? He just took everything you know about being human away from you. At Gethsemane, all your retaliation, all your anger, all your pride, all your ways of winning. And he put his hand up in front of you and said, permit even this, live by this, you'll die by this. You go, I don't know if I want to follow this or not. This is a tough task. But the glory from God shuts its mouth and walks with those soldiers into Pontius Pilate's hall and receives judgment and goes to the cross, and the Bible says this over and over again, and he spoke not a word, and he spoke not a word, and he spoke not a word. Why? Because that's the glory of God. It just stops and receives what the Father has, steps into death because he knows the grave can't hold him. Death has a 100% success rate, and then comes Jesus. He steps into death and explodes out the other side, there's so much. I can't stop talking about Jesus. I, I want to apologize to you. I just ramble when I get to talking about Jesus. I realize it. I know I'm doing it. And I can't stop myself. So we're going to quit. 
because I want to take you to that garden and I want to show you that gardener and I want to show you the whole new creation and that's sermon number two and three and we ain't got that kind of time. What I hope you walk away with is this idea in simplicity. I want the glory that comes from God and I want to know what it looks like and I'm open to the fact that it might not look anything like the glory that comes from man. So Father, teach me about the glory that comes from God. I got a feeling it looks like a seed that goes into the ground and dies. I got a feeling it looks a lot like the cross. I got a feeling it looks a lot like the resurrection. Father, if that's true, let me have a revelation of what that looks like. In any areas of my life that I'm holding on to the glory of man, teach me how to let go of them. Because what would it profit a man if he gained the whole world, lost his own soul? I'm not talking about heaven and hell. I'm talking about what would the profit be if you could hold on to stuff you don't need at the expense of your own peace? There's things we can let go of. I'll close with this thought. He's not asking you to go into the ground and die, but he is telling you that if you join him, you do go into the ground and get broken open. And you know what the breaking open is? It's the breaking of stuff you should have let go of, but you're still carrying. So you might have baggage right now. You got junk you could lay down. That's the breaking. I do not believe, I used to use this illustration. I'm trying to quit. I promise. Don't tell Josiah I went so long. I tr- I used to say this, I used to say, he's a good shepherd, he loves you so much that if, you keep, if you're a little lamb and you keep going off the trail, at some point he's going to pick you up out of the ditch and he's going to snap your leg and then he's going to set it and he's going to hold you close to him and heal you because sometimes God's got to break your leg to get you to walk right. I used to say that. I don't anymore. And let me tell you why I don't. Because a good shepherd would never hurt a healthy sheep. And a good shepherd would never hurt would never hurt a mentally deficient sheep or a wandering sheep or an adventurous little lamb that just wants to see what's off the trail. He's not here to break your personality. He's not here to crush your hopes and your dreams. However, however, sometimes you slide off the trail and you break your leg and you don't go to him for healing. You just let it heal. You let it heal and you limp the rest of your spirit life. And then you come to Jesus and he goes, you want me to fix that? And he snaps it and he puts it back the way it should have been. Because he loves you too much to let the seed go uncracked. If there's something that needs let go of, it's just let go of it. I don't know how to let go. That's okay. We come to Jesus. Christ, Father, I don't know how to let go of this. That's okay. Come to Jesus. You say, well, what's a good approach? Okay. Be the Greeks. I want to see Jesus. You go, well, it didn't work for them. Yes, it did. Yes, it did. It just took longer. You see, your revelation might not be Sunday morning on an altar, but it might start right here today when you allow the seed to get cracked. You go, I want to see Jesus. I'm like these Greeks, let me see Jesus. And Jesus goes, I'm going to show you. But I'm going to show you the way that you'll be changed and you'll never forget. Right. It's not just going to be a revelation. We've had, we've had revival mentality for too long in the church. We'd come in and go, we need a great service. If we had a great service Sunday, that would change my life. But the reality is, is I've sat in great services. Right. And all they really do is make me hungry for another great service. <laughs> They don't change your life. What changes your life is the revelation of Jesus that comes through the cross and the resurrection. And that doesn't just happen overnight, but man, does it happen. And as it happens and takes its seed coming out of the ground, takes fruit and grows. I'm going to quit. Father, thank you today. Thank you for this room. Thank you for this church. Thank you for this great people who've been so kind. They've opened their heart. They've listened and they've soaked. 
Father, I put a lot in front of them today. There's been some paths. We say, you can go with this one way. Oh, you can go with this the other way. And I want them to wrestle because they have the same Holy Spirit in them that Jesus has. It's not inferior. It's not less because they're sitting in the crowd. So, Father, the same Holy Spirit that is in them, let them discern. Let them work. Let them wrestle. And, Father, there's some people here because there's, they're everywhere. They're all, they're all of us. All of us are seeds that need cracked open. There's just something in there that i got to let go of, that I'm hurting and I'm broken and I'm mad. And I've sought the glory of man because I don't know any other way around it. And so I seek vengeance and I seek retribution and payback. And it's the sword. And then there's Jesus who says, I'm going to show you the glory of the Father. The glory of the Father looks different. Begin the work today, Father. I am no more asking you to do it all today than you showed it all to the Greeks in John 12. You laid out the method. Watch the seed go into the ground and die. So, Father, give us a revelation of your death, your burial, your resurrection, in which we are buried and resurrected as well. In Jesus' name. If you receive it, say amen.